see each and every one of you. Igor Batansky was supposed to be here today, so pray for him. He uh, had an outbreak of shingles, the poor man, and uh, because of that, he wasn't able to be here. And I know that breaks his heart because I know that he really loves coming here in Brooklyn and speaking before him, and I miss him already. He's such a, a good man, so keep him in your prayers. Uh, I'm going to have a word of prayer just real quick, if you don't mind, before I start. Dear Heavenly Father, what a privilege and pleasure it is to be in your house of worship, Lord. Thank you for loving us so much. Thank you for allowing us to be a part of your remnant church. You have called us into this movement, and we thank you for that, Lord. I ask that you would forgive us if there be any sins, Lord, that would keep your presence through your Holy Spirit from being here. Please also be with me. Please give me clear thought. And as I present the message in which is so dear to this church that you have given to this church, and I ask this in the mighty name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Amen. So 18, the validity and certainty of 1844 and answers to our critic. And I don't have to tell you, I know that I'm preaching to the choir, so a lot of this you already know, but it's a good refresher to remember our roots and uh, what, how the Lord has raised up this church very specifically here in the last days to present this message. And what makes us who we are is actually the 1844 judgment message. That's who makes seven-day events who we are. God has given this message to us to give to the world. Uh, we are only, or they're actually the only church in the world that preaches the 1844 investigative judgment. There are other churches in the world that also keep the Sabbath. There's other churches in the world that tells that we should worship God. But we're the only church, the only church in the entire world that preaches the 1844 investigated judgment. And really without this message, there really isn't a whole lot of reason for us to exist. I know some people can argue with that with all the other truths that we have. And there's some validity to that argument. But it really what makes, this is the message that makes us stand out among all the reasons. And Satan absolutely hates it when we preach this message. And he hates it because it really pulls life into perspective. It, if people can realize that the judgment for, the, for, the, for you to be either eternally saved or eternally lost is actually going on in heaven right now. If the people in the, in the world were actually aware of that, uh, what a different world we might have or how different we might act. Uh, and so for this reason, uh, Satan actually hates us for preaching this message. He's actually kept the world so busy with the cares of this life. And I don't have to tell you, we see it every day. Everybody's focus is on the ball game and the football games and the basketball games and your kid in Little League and, and your jobs and your homes and you're getting this and getting that. God, Satan has kept everybody's world so busy worried about the cares of this life that we're actually ignoring the fact that since we are Adam and Eve's actually descendants, God has put us on in a, in a He has put us on probation, and I think we forget that that we're actually living in a time of probation, and everything that we say and do is being weighed in the books in the balances to whether we're saved or lost. And I think it's really important that we spend some time and actually talk about that and think about that today. And even we, Seventh-day Adventists, can get so caught up, Satan's all the time trying to draw us away. And all you have to do is think about in the last week how much 
Bible reading you read or any spirit of prophecy or Christian literature, how many times that you prayed. If you can look back at this week and thought to yourself, you know, I really didn't do a whole lot of that. Well, Satan's done a good job keeping you so busy and forgetting the most important thing in this life is what's going on in heaven and the plan of salvation that God has given to each and every one of us. And he wants us to bring us into his kingdom uh, during this time of probation. The question is, will we cooperate with them? And this church is actually God's last day of remnant church. We are the only church that preaches all the truths in the Bible. Amen? amen. you got to say amen. I wasn't born or raised a seven-day Adventist. And when I came into the church at the young age of 27, I absolutely was completely blown, just blown away of how clear the truths were in the Bible and how absolutely deceived I was in the world of darkness not knowing these truths. And I had all these other false teachings in my mind that were totally, absolutely incorrect. So this is a very special church. And this church was called to give this judgment message. As the young lady just read, I'm just going to repeat it. Revelation chapter 14, verses 6 to 9. This is one of the three angels' messages, as you all know. And I saw another angel in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel. This is part of the everlasting gospel. To preach unto them that dwell upon the earth and to every kindred and tongue and people. That's everybody in the world, right? Saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him. For the hour of his judgment has come. Not going to come. It has come. And worship him that made heaven who has made the earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. Amen? So this message is really important. And again, if Satan can cause you to doubt the 1844 investigated judgment, cause you to not realize or not think about the fact that we're living during that time, he can keep you from sharing this message. Because if you're not actually convicted completely and solidly in your heart that that's who we are and that's what we preach, and when we can back this up, Biblically, absolutely proof positive. And we're going to look at that today. And it's my purpose today to show the validity and biblical certainty of the 1844 message. And believe it or not, I know many of you are aware of this, that Satan has actually raised up men, pastors within the Adventist church, even theologians, that actually say that the 1844 message cannot be proven biblically. And that's not even just from without, that's from within. And I'm going to show you that that can absolutely be proven to be absolutely wrong and don't believe it. So today we will be investigating the investigative judgment today and show that all these accusations to be actually false. So here's a question just off the top. I'll just start with this. Does the Bible speak of a judgment to come? And there's no question about it. We'll go over just a few of the verses. I know I'm preaching to the choir, but I think it's good that we review this topic. For God, this is found in Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verse 14. I say that because it's being recorded. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. But God shall bring everything into judgment. And this is the words of Christ in Matthew 12 and verse 36. But I say unto you that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account in the day of judgment. And then 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according that he had done, whether it be good or bad. So from these verses, there's no question about it. There's a judgment. 
And to deny that, when you say the, that the Bible uh, uh, say that it doesn't say that, is absolutely wrong. Jesus said that when he comes again, he will bring his reward with him. Well, obviously, if Jesus is going to bring his reward with him, which we already know to be eternal life, obviously a decision has to be made before he comes, so he knows who to give eternal life to versus those who he's not. Jesus said in Revelation 22, verses 12 through 14, Behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me, to give every man according as his work shall be. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have a right to the tree of life, and may enter in through the gates into the city. Revelation also, the kingdom, on Matthew, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 13, verses 47 and 50. The kingdom of heaven is like unto a net that was cast into the sea and gathered of every kind, which when it was full, they drew it to shore and sat down and gathered the good into the vessels, but cast the bad away. So shall it be at the end of the world. The angels shall come forth and sever the wicked from among the just and shall cast them into the furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. So there's no question about it. there's a judgment time and there's a separation time between those that are saved and those that are lost. Those that have done good and that those who have done evil. So when Jesus comes again, he's going to give eternal life to those that are saved based on a judgment that must have been done, obviously, before he comes. Can you agree with that? When Jesus comes again, we are told that he will be, uh, there will be a separation by the angels, which we have just read. The Bible tells us that there are actually books in heaven that records everything that a person says and does. And every person will be judged either for eternal life or for eternal damnation according to what's written in the books. And you can find that in the book of Revelation in verse 12. And it reads, And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the book was opened. Is that right? Yeah. No, it says the books, right? Not book, but books were open. And another book which was opened is the book of life. Many people think of a book, it's just a book of life. But you can see there's another book. Before the another book, there were books. And the, de the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. So everything that we say and do is recorded in these books in heaven. And we'll be a judge according to that. So then how do we Seventh-day Adventists come up with a date, 1844, for the pre-advent, that means before Jesus comes back, before he, before he comes back, a judgment is to happen in heaven from the Bible. How do we come up with 1844 as the beginning of that time? And it's important that we do understand that, because if we're going to go preach it to the world, that listen, brothers and sisters, there's a judgment going on in heaven, and you're, thinks you're being weighed, whether you're going to be eternally saved or eternally lost, based on what, how you act and what the things you do in this life that are recorded in the books. And we need to tell them how. Remember, there are critics within our church and from without our church that say the 1844 pre-Advent judgment cannot be proven biblically. But I'm going to show you that it can today. Many of our critics say that the Adventists just came up with the date 1844 as a faith-saving excuse for the great disappointment of 1844 by William Miller. And that's, that's really an amazing statement. It really That's a painful statement, but William Miller is a Baptist that preached that Jesus would return in 1844, which was proven to be wrong. William Miller was wrong on the date of 1844 as far as the return of Jesus Christ. 
It is true that William Mary got the prophetic time of the return of Jesus Christ wrong. He got the prophetic time wrong, but the, it's actually the event he got wrong. But an event did happen in prophetic time that William Miller got right. So he was wrong about Jesus coming back in 1844, but he wasn't wrong on his understanding of prophecy and how he came to 1844. So something majorly happened in 1844, and we're going to look at that. I believe the 1844 date for the investigated judgment can be easily proven from the Bible, and I'm going to prove that to you today, so that you can never have any doubt about the validity and certainty of this date and the investigated judgment message, and that you can proclaim it proudly. The Seventh-day Adventist Church rose up after the great disappointment of 1844, the Millerite movement. One of Millerites, um, one of one of the Millerites studied the prophecies of what um, what uh, William Miller William Miller studied, and he realized he got the date right, but he got the uh, but the event wrong. And God had actually showed to him that actually what happened. Where, what he got wrong was he got the, the prophetic time right, but the event wrong. And what God was actually showing is that God started the investigated judgment. And we're going to look at that in more, a little bit more detail. Some of our critics say the judgment of heaven started the day when Jesus ascended to heaven, right after his resurrection and ascension. Many of the evangelical churches believe that. They believe that when Jesus went to heaven, he sat right next to the Father, and the judgment had started right then. And they use Ephesians chapter 1, verses 19 through 20 as evidence for that. When he, God, raised him, Jesus from the dead, and sat him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. So with that, they kind of in their mind vision that Jesus, if you can remember the sanctuary, of course I can't go into a whole sanctuary message, we'll touch on it, but I can't go into it detail today. Uh, but obviously we know that in the sanctuary there was a holy place, the most holy place. And they believe that when Jesus went to heaven, he went right into the most holy place, sat next to the Father, because this verse says it, therefore, he didn't go into the holy place, that settles it. And they use this in the verse to prove that we're wrong. But actually, they're wrong, as you'll see. Of course, you know, we have as believed, as the, as the earthly sanctuary was, that the priest actually went into the holy place daily, and, uh, and then once a year, the day of Yom Kippur, the day of judgment, they went into the most holy place. So that is a very special day. We know, again, I'm, just, I'm preaching to the choir here. We know when you study the book of Revelation that Jesus was found standing amongst the candlesticks. Well, where do you find the candlesticks? In the holy place. So there's no question about Jesus is the high priest. The earthly priest was just a representation of what Jesus did in heaven. In fact, the sanctuary study is absolutely fascinating because it's actually a, if you will, it's a dramatization play, if, if you will, of what's going on in heaven, of the whole plan of salvation. It really is amazing. But again, we can't focus on that. We're focused on how we're going to get to 1844. One of our biggest critics is a man called Desmond Ford. How many of you have heard of Desmond Ford, just out of curiosity? So there's quite a few hands went up, and there's a lot of hands in heaven. So Desmond Ford is now deceased, and he, is, he was actually one of our Seventh-day Adventist theologians. And who was defrocked as an evidence because of belief and denial of the 1844 investigative judgment. And even because of this man, he was a very charismatic speaker. And even though he got defrocked, he still was invited to many camp meetings and speak. And he has his own theological papers, as you can see a picture of it there. And because of this man, many Adventist pastors have actually left the Adventist church 
over the issue of the 1844 investigative judgment. As amazing as that sounds, it's true. Here's another one of our Adventist theologians who I have a lot of respect for. His name is Dr. Ralph Larson. He's also uh, a doctor in theology. And he actually published a book to counter all the damage that Desmond Ford had done. And it's called The Hellish Torch. I actually have a copy of that book. It's out of print now. And you might find this interesting, but uh, Pastor Jeff Weir and Kent Millard are the ones who had that book published. They worked together. It's amazing. So kudos to them. Dr. Ralph Larson, one of our Adventist theologians, had this to say about Desmond Ford. On October 27, 1979, Dr. Desmond Ford, at a meeting of Association of the Adventist Forums at Pacific Union College, delivered an address in which he took a very strong issue with the doctrines of the Seventh-day Adventist Church in regards to the sanctuary and the investigative judgment. His overall thesis appears to be that Christ did, and did not enter the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary in 1844, as we have taught and believed throughout our history, but rather that Christ entered the most holy place to begin the final phase of his work for man, and that happened in 31 AD when Jesus ascended to heaven, and at that time, at the time of his ascension. So there you have it. So Dr. Ford's emphasis that in 31 AD, when Jesus ascended to heaven, he, he went to complete the work in behalf of man in the most holy. His emphasis is strongly on justification, distancing himself from sanctification. To Desmond Ford, Jesus is our sanctification and our justification. Therefore, there's no need for an investigative judgment. And if you can comprise everything that these men have to say, it's in that. Jesus is both your justification, which you do nothing for, and Jesus is your sanctification, which you do nothing for. And to them, that's the plan of salvation, all tied up in a bow, that's the end of it. We don't need the investigative judgment. That's why. If you, if you boil everything down, that's what they believe. But here he is wrong. The Bible clearly teaches that unless you were born again, changed, you shall in no wise enter the kingdom of heaven. That's found in John chapter 3, verse 3. It is true that God does declare you justified when you accept him. And it is true that Jesus is our sanctification. But in sanctification, God does not only declare you sanctified, he actually sanctifies you. And I hope you understand that. Meaning he changes you. He makes you holy. That's what the word sanctification means, to be made holy. So when you accept Jesus and you sin, and you accept Jesus as your Savior, he takes your sin, and that is uh, that is what they call, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, that is, uh, well, we'll just say you're declared, you're forgiven. He does forgive you. And that's all you have to do is go to Jesus and get, give him your sins and he forgives you. And he's also our sanctification, but his sanctification is different. The word sanctification means to be made holy, such as the Sabbath. On the seventh day, God sanctified it. He blessed it. He set it, he set it aside. Well, God wants to sanctify you. He wants to change you. So on the book of John 3, 3 writes, Unless you are born again changed, you shall no way enter the kingdom of heaven. So there's no, there's no question. There's a change that has to happen in you. Can't, you're not going to be declared born again. You actually have to be born again. Can I hear an amen? amen? I mean, there's a big difference. And a lot of churches got this all messed up because they have the mindset that Jesus sanctifies you, justifies you, sanctifies you, and the subject. You're saved. 
That's the end of it. But they're ignoring the fact that, no, God wants to not only declare you sanctified, he actually sanctifies you. You need to be born again. So in heaven, God brings everything into judgment by going over the books to see if you've been born again, changed. That's what's written in the books. To see if you have been sanctified and not just declared to be sanctified. I mean, could God take a person who's actually not sanctified to heaven? Who's not holy to heaven? There's no way. He would just have this earth again and heaven. Dr. Ralph Larson stated, uh, I'm sorry, this is, yeah, Dr. Ralph Larson stated that Dr. Desmond Ford took a very strong issue with the investigative judgment. But the real issue here is, did the investigative judgment happen in 1844 or not? Dr. Desmond Ford says no. Here's a picture of his own website. And I know you may not be able to read there where the arrow's pointing, but it, it, this is his uh, picture, not mine. This is his words, not mine. Bye-bye to the investigative judgment. So that is Desmond Ford's view as far as investigative judgment in 1844. And Ralph Larson says, well, listen, either 1844 happened or not. Desmond Ford says there's no investigation judgment that happened in 1844. But again, I believe that Desmond Ford could be easily proven wrong. Uh, Desmond Ford believed that the judgment already happened in 31 AD when Jesus ascended to heaven and sat next to the Father, and that 1844 didn't happen. So again, we're going to go over this. So I'm going to show you how that the judgment did not, hap that did not happen right after Jesus ascended to heaven in 31 AD, as Desmond Ford believed. So that's a big point in his argument. That, the, that after Jesus ascended to heaven, the judgment began right there, done. I'm going to show you biblically that the judgment happened after Jesus' ascension. I'm going to show you that from the Bible. Not only did it happen after Jesus ascended to heaven, it happened a long time after Jesus ascended to heaven. Now I'm going to show you that. I'm going to show you this in a few verses, but know this. We know that the book of Acts, the book of Acts were the Acts of the Apostles, now, did the, act of, did the book of Acts of the Apostles, was it written before Jesus ascended to heaven or after? After. There's no question about it. So, how do we know this? Because in the second verse, in chapter 1, in the book of Acts, it states, Until the day in which he, Jesus, was taken up. Now, is that before or after? It's after. There's no question about it. The book of Acts. And this is Acts chapter 1. So you cannot say these words in the book of Acts until the day he was taken up unless he had already been taken up. There's no question about it. So all I want you to get from here is that the book of Acts was written after Jesus ascended to heaven. Now let's go from Acts chapter 1 verse 2, which we just read, to now Acts chapter 17 and 31. And you will see that the judgment did not begin right after Jesus ascended to heaven as Desmond Ford says, but it happened in the future, and I read from Acts chapter 17, verse 31. He, God, had appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man who he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men that he hath raised him from the dead. So here you have it in the book of Acts that the judgment already happened. No, he says he, it will. There's a day coming in which he will do it. So it didn't happen right then from the Bible. So I want to ask you a question. Is this first speaking of a future tense or past tense? Or present tense? Future tense. A day which he will judge the world. Okay? 
Let's read it again, just for emphasis, Acts 17, 31. And God hath appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man. So, again, there's a time coming in which he will. So there can be no doubt about it, this verse is speaking of a future day after the resurrection in which he will, future tense, uh, judge the world. So, if it already happened, it would have been present tense, but it didn't happen yet. Here's another verse in the book of Acts that tells us that after Jesus is ascended, there is a judgment to come. And I'm now reading the book of Acts, chapter 24. Okay? He reasoned of righteousness and temperance and a judgment what? To come. So obviously the judgment did not happen after Jesus ascended to heaven. It was a future time. It was a time in which it would come. It was written, uh, and this was written after Jesus ascended to heaven. So this proves that there was no judgment made when Jesus went to heaven right after his ascension. This absolutely ends it. It happened in the future. There's a time coming. This proves that Desmond Ford is absolutely wrong, and you can prove it biblically. So when did the judgment begin? To understand when the judgment began <coughs> and prove that there is investigated judgment, we will have to look in the book of Daniel chapter 2, 7, 8, and 9 in order to understand when the judgment began. Obviously, we don't have time, brothers and sisters, to read every verse of these chapters. So I'm just going to, I know, again, I'm preaching to the choir. I know many of you are aware of what I'm preaching or what I'm sharing with you today. But I'm only going to pull out of these verses, these chapters, just the things that will take us to 1844 so that you can see it. Um, all right, so in each one of these chapters, there's a piece of a puzzle. And you need all, you need Daniel chapter 2, 7, 8, and 9 to get all pieces. Each one of them gets a piece of the puzzle that puts it together to tell this one. So in Daniel chapter 2, again, I know I'm preaching to the choir, and you already know the statue of Daniel, the Nebuchadnezzar. You already know that the gold represents Babylon. The, the silver represents Medo-Persia. You know the brass represents Greece, iron, Rome, and then the, the clay and iron, the dividing of the ten kingdoms. You already know that. So what's important for you to see is that in which kingdom did Jesus ascend to heaven in? You remember? Rome, right? In the time of iron. So we know the judgment didn't happen before then. We know that the judgment since the Bible said it was going to happen in the future. It obviously was going to happen after Jesus ascended to heaven. And that happened in the times of the iron. Now, again, I'm just going to read this for emphasis. Now, you might be wondering what does Daniel chapter 2 have to do with the 1844, the time of the judgment. Hang in there. Each chapter has a piece of the puzzle. But this we know that Jesus was actually crucified, resurrected in seven in the time of Rome. And we also know at this point that it was going to happen in the future. So that's something we can learn from Daniel chapter 2 as far as investigating judgment. Our next clue comes in Daniel chapter 7. Again, I know I'm preaching to choir. Uh, in Daniel chapter 2, Daniel sees all the kings of the world as metals. And you know in Daniel chapter uh uh, Daniel chapter 7, he describes these same kingdoms, except this time they're described as animals. And uh, there's, a, there's a piece of the puzzle here that we need to see. In Daniel chapter 7, Daniel has a vision. And Daniel sees four beasts arise from the sea. Okay, those same kingdoms. The first was a lion. Okay, as you all know, Babylon and the lion, they represent each other. In fact, if you look up any ancient relics of Babylon... 
uh, the lion clearly was a symbol of Babylon, like the eagles, a symbol of America. The second was like a bear, the third like a leopard, and the fourth was a dreadful beast with ten horns. And then he sees a little horn arise out of the ten horns with eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. So question, who are these beasts and horns, and who is the little horn? Well, I know that you already know it, but Daniel chapter 7, the great beasts or animals which are four are four kings which shall rise out of the earth, just like you saw in Daniel chapter 2. Then I would know the truth of the fourth beast, which was the fourth beast, Rome, right? And it had ten horns that were in his head, and a little horn which came up that had eyes of a uh, mouth that spake, as, spake very great things, and it's Daniel 7.20. And I beheld the same little horn made war with the saints and prevailed against them, and that's found in Daniel 7.24. Again, we know that Rome at this time represents the ten kingdoms, and as you already know, Rome... Uh, was not conquered by another kingdom, but they fell apart in the ten division of kingdoms. That's why you have iron and clay. It's no longer solid iron. Now it's iron and clay. They can no longer be a solid piece of iron again. They'll no longer be a world empire. But Rome is still there. Rome didn't go away. It's now divided into ten kingdoms. And a little kingdom, a little horn, rises up among the ten, who you already know to be the Antichrist. So, again, there's a, a nice image there that kind of gives you the picture of uh, Daniel with the, uh, with the metal images. And now you see the animals next to it uh, with the division of Rome and the little horn there speaking. The point is that the fourth kingdom shall be divided into ten kingdoms. It is interesting that the statue also has ten toes. So it's very interesting that Rome divided into ten. And now you have ten toes on the statue. And we know that this is biblically absolutely solid. Not only does the Bible tell you who these kingdoms are, it doesn't tell you who Rome is, but it's obviously uh, Rome was the one who conquered Greece. All we have to do is look back in history. <coughs> Excuse me. And again, history proves that all these kingdoms happen just as the Bible said. And then in Daniel 7, verse 24, the ten horns out of this kingdom are ten kings or kingdoms that shall rise and another little kingdom shall arise after them, meaning after the horns, divided kingdoms. And he shall be diverse, meaning different from the first, meaning Rome is now a political religious power and is no longer a world empire, but is now a divided kingdom state. It no longer can rule the world with a mighty fist as it did in the time of pagan Rome. And I don't have to tell you, for the sake of time, I don't have to tell you who the little horn is. The Bible makes it absolutely clear. There's no question about it. Uh, we're hardly the only church that knows this. Martin Luther, Huss, Jerome, all of them all studied the Bible. They all knew who the little horn, horn is. There's no question about it. It was a papacy. So I'm not going to spend time on that. But again, please pay attention to the sequence of these historical events because they, they are an important piece of the puzzle that God has given us to understand when the judgment or the, date, or, or the date of the judgment when it began. So here's the sequence again. Again, I know I'm not sharing anything with you. Just as we just read. You've got the kingdom of the, of the metals. You've got the beast. You've got the little horn. So here's what's important. Now don't miss this. A major event happens between when the papacy comes into power and when God establishes a kingdom when he comes again. The Bible is going to tell us that there's something that happens between when the papacy arrives and when Jesus Christ comes back. And this is what we're told. 
in Daniel chapter 7, verses 8 and 10. And I considered the horns, and behold, came up among them another horn. We already know this. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. I beheld till the thrones were placed, and one that was on the, was the Ancient of Days that did sit. His remnant was white as snow, and his hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was like a fiery flame, and the wheels thereof burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came from before him. Thousands and thousands ministered unto him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. And notice what he says next. And the judgment was set, and the books were opened. There's a sequence of events here that you need to see. Now, does this happen after papal Rome or before papal Rome? After papal Rome, right? So we now know that this judgment is going to start after papal Rome when the books are opened and people will be judged. So this is proof, again, that the judgment did not begin until well after Jesus ascended to heaven because Jesus ascended during the time of the Roman Empire. But now we're told that the judgment is going to happen after the little horn arises. Jesus was crucified and was buried and resurrected, then ascended to heaven. Oh boy, I'm going to run out of power. Excuse me, i got to get a little closer here. How am I going to do this? Oh boy, this is a nightmare. We don't have an extension cord, do we? Okay, I'm going to read this while Ceres does something here before I run out of power. Again, the Bible stated in the book of Acts that the judgment was a future date. Did it prove to be a future date? It absolutely did, because it happens after the time of Rome. And we can plainly see that from the prophecies of Daniel chapter 7 that this is true, because now we can see that the judgment did not begin until after the fall of the Roman Empire. In Daniel chapter 7, we also make it absolutely clear that the prophecies did not begin until after the little horn, the papacy, came into power. Again, I'm not going to read it again, but we just read that. So to put it into perspective, this would put the ascension of Jesus in the time of the Roman Empire. And now this puts the time of the judgment in the time of the divided king. So we get a little bit more information on when this judgment is going to happen. And you can't deny it. I mean, the Bible couldn't make it any clearer. That the judgment is set and the books were open. So we know what we're talking about here. Now we go to Daniel chapter 8. In Daniel chapter 8, we get another piece of the puzzle. In Daniel chapter 8, verse 1, it says, In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared unto me, even unto Daniel, after that which appeared to me at first. So in Daniel chapter 8, Daniel is taken off in vision again, and he's shown a great a goat and a ram, which represent the second and third world empire. Actually, actually, that would be right. It would be Meda. Yeah, it would be. It would be Meda, Persia, and Greece, the Third World Empire, who we already know to be Meda, Meda, Persia, and Greece. And again, the Bible makes it actually clear on who these people were. I'm just trying to get that. Okay. Uh, the Bible makes it clear in Daniel chapter 8, verse 20, the ram which thou sawest, having two horns, are the kingdoms of Medo and Persia. Thank you. And in Daniel 8, 21... And the rough goat is the king of Grecia. So there's no question about who the goat and the ram is. It's just the other two kingdoms in the, in the statue. So comparing Daniel chapter 2, 7 and 8, it looks like this. You, have, you see there the metals. You see the animals. 
and you now see the ram and the goat. So you kind of this picture kind of helps puts it all together. So the ten kingdoms are not mentioned in Daniel chapter eight, only the little horn people Rome, and it's in the destruction of the papacy by the rock cut out without hands. Hands that's found in Daniel chapter eight, twenty-three and twenty-five. So here's what's important in Daniel chapter eight. In Daniel chapter eight, there is one, there are twenty-seven verses, and right in the middle of these verses, there is a statement told to Daniel by the angel Gabriel that gives us another piece of the puzzle about the time of the judgment. And, this is, and it reads, Daniel chapter 8, 14. And he said unto me, unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. Now the sanctuary, if, again, without going into the study of the sanctuary, again, I know I'm preaching to the choir here. I'm just trying to show you how we get 1844. I'm showing you where the critics are wrong and can be shown, proven biblically as wrong. So the cleansing of the sanctuary is the same as the time of the judgment. And uh, there's no question about that. I already know that many of you know that. It's also known as the time of Yom Kippur. That is also known as the time of judgment. But just for those of you who might be here, might not be aware of that, I'm going to show you some uh, words written by rabbis and other people. Again, and I quote, uh, The cleansing of the sanctuary was accomplished by the removal of sins of the year on the Day of Atonement. That happened once a year, okay? And the demonstration on the earth. And it only happens once in heaven. It's also known as the Day of Atonement. was a day of judgment in the camp of Israel. And whatever soul did not find pardon in that day was cut off. You can find that in Leviticus chapter 23, verses 27 through 29. The Jews, even yet, in their observance of the Day of Atonement, to this day regard the day as a day of judgment. So this is nothing new. The cleansing of the sanctuary and the Yom Kippur and the Day of Judgment is the same thing. Here is a quote from a San Francisco Jewish exponent. In announcing it today, it is said that the monetary sounds of the, of the shafar, the trumpet, are to be heard in the Orthodox synagogues advising preparation for the Day of a Memorial and the final judgment of Yom Kippur. Again, it's the Judgment Day. In 1902, um, Lissador Meyer, a rabbi, by voice of the trumpet and shofar, to scrutinize respectively the actions of the pastor while he stands trembling before the all-seeing eye of eternal justice sitting on the throne of judgment. So I hope that was enough to kind of help you see that the cleansing of the sanctuary and the time of the judgment is the same thing. So again, and you said unto me, unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleaned, or the day of judgment would begin. Do you see that? Amen? Yeah. I hope I didn't put you to sleep. I know this is a lot. It's, you know, this subject is this big, and I'm trying to condense it to this size. <laughs> so it's not an easy thing, but it is an easy thing to show that our critics are wrong. And it's not, an e it's not a hard thing to show that when the 1844 began. We've already showed that we know that, correct me if I'm wrong, but have we not shown that the judgment would happen sometime after Jesus ascended to heaven? If you agree with that, say amen. Did we not show from the Bible that it would happen uh, after the time that the papacy would start? There's no question about it. It's biblically solid. You can't argue it. So now we have the time prophecy telling us when the cleansing of the sanctuary, the day of atonement, would happen. But here's the problem. We don't know the starting point. We know that the 2,300 days is actually 2,300 years because we're talking prophetically. And I'm not telling you anything you don't know. I'm not telling you anything that many 
scholars and other churches, they already know that a day in prophecy represents a year. It's nothing new. We're not new to that. But here in Daniel chapter 9, we get the final piece of the puzzle. In Daniel chapter 9, verses 21 and 23, it says, Yes, while I was speaking in prayer, even the man Gabriel, an angel from heaven, whom I had seen in vision at the beginning, O Daniel, I have come forth to give thee skill and understanding. Therefore, understand the matter and consider the vision. Now, in the book of Daniel, it's important that you understand that, again, that the 2300 days is actually 2300 prophetic years. It's important that you understand this, so I'm going to skip all the other prophecies within the 2300-year prophecy. Because within the 2300 prophecy, there's actually other prophecies that are within inside the 2300 prophecy. So the 2300-year prophecy tells us when the judgment would begin, but with also within that 2300-year prophecy, there were other prophecies that told us other things. You know that, right? Okay. The angel Gabriel tells Daniel in Daniel chapter 9.25, and here's the beginning of the 2300 years. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks, three score, and two weeks. Now that is a prophecy that's within the 2300 years. But what's important for you to understand the prophecy, we're actually told when the prophecy begins. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and build a Jerusalem, that is the beginning of the prophecy. And you'd have to understand all the other little prophecies in there maybe to see that clear. But again, I know that I'm preaching to the choir. So, But there's no question on when the 2300 uh, year prophecy begins. So here's the big question. What is the year uh, what year did the commandment to restore and rebuild Jerusalem happen? Using the Bible and history, they tell us that this happened in the fall of the year in 457 B.C. Nobody debates this. Nobody debates this historically. This is a historical fact. There are many historians that were in the world that recorded history, and they recorded this date. In fact, in the book of Ezra, chapter 7, verses 11 through 28, the Bible tells us that a decree happened and the seventh year of King Artaxerxes, hope I said that right, uh, that the king of Persia at that time, that this happened in the year 457 in the fall of the year. So in Ezra, it's actually recorded who the king was. It also tells us in the seventh year of his reign. So there's no question. All you have to go back in history to see this king and see what year it was in the seventh year of his reign to know when that happened. Ellen White confirms this date, the restoration of Jerusalem, which formed the starting point for the period of the 2300 days, went into effect in autumn, the fall of the year, 457 B.C., and you can find it in Christ and his sanctuary. So there's no question about that date. It's biblically solid and historically proven, and of course the spirit of prophecy even backs this up. So now all we have to do to know when the investigative judgment happens is to calculate the 2300 years in the future. And we'll know exactly when the investigated judgment started. Now this part can be a little confusing. It's not if you just think about it, but it can be confusing. And the reason why it's confusing, because if you take 457, you count backwards, okay? Years today is 2023, next year will be 2024. If this was in BC time, this year is 2023, next year is going to be 2022, 2021. It went backwards, okay? 
So if you subtract 457 from the 2300 years, you actually get the year in which uh, the time of the judgment happens. And when you do that, you use your calculator, you come up with what? 1843. And it's a little confusing. A lot of many, many Adventists get confused at this point because they go home, they do their calculation, no matter how many times they do it, it's 1883 or 1843. And they don't understand why. So I want to help explain that a little bit. So when you, you, if you go back into the Internet and you look up things, there's a talk of a zero year, there's no zero year. And to me, it's very confusing. But I'm going I'm to simplify it and make it really easy for you. I also was born in the fall uh, when I was born in 1959. But you can't count the day that I was born as a year, can you? Because a full year didn't happen. It goes from fall to fall. I wouldn't be a year. I was born in October 19, 1959. But I wasn't one until October 19, 1960. Is that right? So you see, you, you're moving, you have to move forward in here. And if you go all the way down to the date of eight, fall of 1843, it's not completed yet because you have to go forward 12 months to complete the 2300th year. Does that make sense? Now you understand how to do that. I hope that made sense to you. Because when I learned that, it was like, okay, that settled it. Now I understand. It happened from fall to fall, not January to January. So let's review what we've learned in Acts and the other chapters of Daniel. In the book of Acts, the judgment would not happen. It would happen sometime in the future after Jesus ascended to heaven. Did we prove that? In Daniel chapter 2, we learned that the judgment would begin between the Roman Empire and when Jesus returned, right? In Daniel chapter 7, we learned that the judgment happened after the papacy would come into power. Was that right? In Daniel chapter 8, we learned that the 2300-day prophecy uh, as to the judgment begins... But we're not given the starting point. We're just given a time frame when it would happen. But in Daniel chapter 9, we are given the starting point for the 2300 prophecy as to when the judgment would begin. And by that, we know it happened in the fall of the year of 1844. Now, notice how perfect all this fits in with everything that we learned from Acts to Daniel chapter 2 to Daniel chapter 7, 8, and 9. The 1844 judgment began well after Jesus ascended to heaven because you can see where it started. Jesus was crucified in the time of Rome and it happened after the time of the papacy. Uh, the prophecy actually began in a time of Persia. That would have been a time of silver with the King El Xerxes right there and Ezra tells you when the starting point happened. And when you calculate it, where does it fall? It falls in, in the time of our time. It falls down to 1844. So it fits in perfectly with everything that we read in Acts, Daniel chapter 2, 7, 8, and 9. This makes it absolutely clear that Desmond Ford and those who claim that the 1844 judgment can't be proven is absolutely wrong. Can you see that? I hope so. So here's another way of seeing all four chapters of Daniel. Again, we learned that it would happen between the time of the papacy and before Jesus comes back. It's just another way of seeing it. So, and it fits in perfectly with everything that we learned. Did you want to take a picture of that? I'm sorry. Okay. And then, so here's my answer to our critics. The judgment did not happen right after Jesus ascended to heaven, but rather long afterwards, as we saw and learned. The judgment can be proven biblically, as we use the Bible to prove it. And 1844 fits in perfectly with Daniel chapters 2, 7, 8, and 9. 
and the starting date for 1844 cannot be denied since we know that the starting date, then we also know the end date, and there can be no question about it. So how does the cleansing of the sanctuary of heaven work? I'm just going to read one statement from the Spirit of Prophecy, because some people may not fully understand how the cleansing works. Okay, So now we know when the judgment happens. We know what happens in the fall of 1844, but how does this cleansing work? Okay, So here's one statement. It's worth writing down and contemplating. It's found in Patriarch and Prophets, page 356 and 358. And this is probably the clearest statement I've ever read on the cleansing of the sanctuary. After his, Jesus' ascension, our Savior was to begin his work as our high priest in the heavenly sanctuary. The blood of Christ, while it was not to cancel the sin, it would stand on record in the heavenly sanctuary until the final atonement. So in the type, the blood of the sin offered removed the sin from the Sinner, if you will. But it rested in this sanctuary until the day of atonement, the day of judgment. It rested there in heaven. In the great day of final reward, the dead are to be judged out of those things which are written in the books according to their works. Revelation 20, verse 12. Then by virtue of the atoning blood of Christ, the sins of all, are, all the truly penitent or repentant will be blotted from the books of heaven. Thus, the sanctuary will be freed, cleansed from the record of sin. So, it's only removed if you're truly repentant. That means when you confess your sins to Jesus Christ, that your sin goes to heaven, and Jesus pardons you, but your sin remains on the record, and then the time of judgment, God's now going to review you, you come up before God in the judgment, and God's going to go over the book to see were you truly repentant. Was there any change? Did he really stop? Did he really mean what he said? If there was no change, then he wasn't really truly repentant. He really wasn't sorry. He didn't turn from his sin. In that case, you'll be found saved or lost. Be found lost. And these are the days in which we are living, brothers and sisters. Now, I don't have time to go in. I can spend more time on the time of the judgment, but I don't have time today uh, to go into, into all of it. But the judgment is actually not going to everybody in the world right now. Because those who are not accepted Christ, it's a separate judgment because they're already lost. They haven't accepted Christ. They're already in a lost state. That's the reason they don't need to come up in judgment. It's a separate judgment. The judgment is going on for God's people. It's going on for each one of us. Those of us who claim to accept Jesus Christ and to be obedient to his commandments. Our names are going to come up. But it happens for the dead first. And I could prove that biblically. Again, I don't have the time. But all those who, ex who claim to be Christians who were laid to rest, that's why the dead stand before Christ. It's the dead. It, they don't literally stand, but their name comes up. And their, their record is reviewed. Because the Bible says the appointed man wants to die, and then the judgment. That's right. So the dead get judged first, those who claim to be Christians. Our names haven't come up yet, but we don't know when they're going to. But when they do, and that's final, Jesus stands up, the plagues fall, and the judgment is final. And obviously, if the plagues fall on us, we know where we fell in the judgment. Or if we wake up in the resurrection, and the resurrection of damnation, and then there'll be another judgment at that time when every knee will bow. 
So this confirms that God did indeed raise the seventh-day Adventist church and proclaim that judgment has come. Because we were raised up after the judgment had started. And that's why we needed, to be, uh, he needed a church to be raised up during that time. Because before that time, the judgment didn't start. So he raised up a remnant after 1844 to now proclaim, listen, it's come. It's not coming. It's here. It's not going to happen. It's happening. And we need, to, we, we need to keep that in mind. So we need to fear God and give glory to him. For the hour of judgment has come, as it's recorded in Revelation 14 and verse 7. The Advent, again, church grows up after the disappointment. And if we do not tell the world that the judgment has begun, who will? It's us. Just like it was in the day, days in the... Just as it was on... I'm just going to go forward here. Well, let me go with that one. I'm just trying to save a little time. Just as Noah preached for 120 years that the flood was coming, we're to preach a fire was coming. Just in the times and days of Noah, he preached to the world, listen, the world's coming to an end. Fear God and give glory to him. Do what he says. And those who didn't listen were destroyed. They were lost. A judgment would happen back then in the antediluvian world. And we've been raised up to say, listen, guys, there's a fire coming. There was a flood last time, but there's a fire coming. And there's a judgment going on right now. You want to be saved? You want to, or you want to be like the antediluvian world? And if we don't preach it, who will? That's the question. So don't be ashamed of 1844. You can stand firm that 1844 is solid. It's absolutely solid. Fits in with all the prophecies perfectly. And I thank you for listening. I know it's a lot. But keep in mind, I'm preaching something this big, this size. It's not easy. But I hope I pulled enough evidence out from the Bible to show our critics are absolutely wrong. And I feel sorry for Adventist pastors or people who have left this church because of false lies and that have come into the church by Satan to make people doubt the validity and certainty of 1844. And doing that, you destroy exactly who we are and what we're here for. May God bless you and keep you.